2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. And let me read our passage of scripture. Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And Father, we just ask as we take upon ourselves this time to look at another portion of the word of God, a new portion here in the book of 2 Corinthians, that Lord, in a fresh way, in this very time of worship, you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, our soul, and our spirit, Lord, that we would be receptive and attentive to hear the very voice of you as the living God speaking things to us through the scripture and through the ministry of your spirit. So bless your word, prepare us, and please speak to us, Lord, we ask together expectantly in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, is it possible this morning there are some underlying motivations for the reason why you're conducting yourself in the way that you currently are? Is it possible, if you were to do a little heart check, that there may be a reason why you are actually charting the very course that you find yourself taking? When you look up the word motivations in the dictionary, it's defined this way. The reasons that we have for acting or behaving in a particular way. Motivations, the reasons that we have for acting or behaving in a particular way. And as people, we can have both good motivations or healthy motivations. And we also, as people at times, can have bad or unhealthy motivations. And I've come to learn that God is most pleased that we tend to act and behave best and life is better and we treat people best when we have good motivations. When we have healthy motivations, things end up being most healthy in our lives. And that is what we see really coming to pass in our text here. We find, I think in these verses, some of Paul's healthy motives or things that were motivations that were healthy in Paul the Apostle and his ministry team's lives. And I think these same motivations would serve us well to be reasons for that we would find ourselves acting and behaving in certain ways also. Again, remember our backdrop. Paul has just left off emphasizing the importance of having an eternal perspective. That's kind of been the thing that Paul's been discussing recently. And as we navigate our earthly journey, that we'd have an eternal perspective. In fact, he concluded in our verses last time, talking about how his main goal was to please the Lord, to be fully pleasing to him above all else. And that was their constant aim. And Paul said the reason is because he knew that Jesus, like a sports judge in an arena, watching people run the race, who would then at the end give out the rewards according to how well they performed in running their race, that Jesus was watching and observing our lives as servants of the Lord. And that one day we're going to stand before this thing called the judgment seat of Christ as Christians, and we are going to receive from the Lord according to how we lived out our Christian life. Our salvation is assured by faith and faith alone. And by the grace of God, we're saved, not by works. But the Bible tells us that though we're saved by faith and not works, that we're saved for good works, Ephesians 2 says, and that we are to work out our own salvation. And that as we run our race as a Christian, if you would, we've each given a race to run. As we run our race, that one day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give account for how well we ran our race as a Christian. You might say what we did with our opportunity 
to live as a Christian? How well did we serve the Lord or not serve the Lord? What things did we do for the Lord or neglect to do for the Lord and receive an eternal reward according to how we ran our race? And in Paul's mind, that was a sobering reality. And that sobering reality that each soul was one day going to stand before the Lord Jesus to answer for how we lived out our Christian life. It seems that it's that sobering reality of each one having to answer to the Lord and give account to the Lord one day and stand before him that leads Paul to now say here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, in light of that, knowing therefore, verse 11, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So notice, first of all, a healthy concern regarding each soul one day giving, giving account for their life before the Lord and answering to Jesus when their life on earth is over that became a strong, you might say, motivation in Paul and his ministry team's lives. Knowing in their minds, they themselves and others as well were going to one day stand and give account before the very Lord Jesus Christ himself. That motivated them. Paul says here, therefore, knowing that, in light of knowing it, he says, verse 11, the terror of the Lord, that's what makes us persuade men. Now, when he speaks here of the terror of the Lord, that's kind of an old way of describing strong reverential awe or fear. The idea is of standing before a great king who has importance and power and authority. The idea is how in a healthy way you would tremble, if you had a right mindset, you would tremble before a powerful king who had great authority and who was important and and with really the ability to hold your very life in their hand and with one word that king could change your destiny and this is the idea that if that were the case you'd be a little bit kind of nervous to stand before that king and rightfully so because they have such power and they have such authority well look, we need to remember jesus is a loving savior absolutely he's a loving savior but the bible also tells us that he is the king of kings and that he's the Lord of lords, that he's the supreme ruler of all and has all authority as a supreme ruler. And in the same way, to a much greater degree than any earthly king, with a word, Jesus has power to do anything. With a spoken word, he brought the world into existence. With a spoken word, he can do anything that he wants, and he rules with that total authority. And so therefore, he's not a king to be dishonored or disrespected, or to think upon in a light manner. And the image here is having a healthy fear of the Lord and a reverence regarding who he is. One other translation renders verse 11 here saying, understanding the fear of the Lord, because we understand our fearful responsibility unto the Lord. See, Paul had a healthy fear of the Lord as that supreme king and ruler, and it kept a healthy concern in his heart that kind of always kept his life in check a little bit. And that's a good thing. And it kept his heart in a place where he was motivated in a good way to do what's right. And it was this healthy concern about himself and each and every soul around him that he loved and cared about, that they were going to one day stand before the Lord as king that motivated Paul. He says here in verse 11, that's what motivates us to persuade men or to persuade the ideas all of mankind. And to persuade means to call someone to do something through reasoning with them. So it was concern for everyone's soul in Paul's heart that one day we would all give account unto the Lord that motivated Paul, he says, to reason with people, to persuade people and reason with them regarding their spiritual lives. So no doubt this did two things. It prompted Paul and his team to persuade unsaved souls among men to persuade unsaved people to realize their lost and sinful condition, that they're separated from God and that their sin makes them guilty before a holy and a righteous God whom they must one day give account to, and that if that sin is not removed and forgiven and they don't make peace with God, that literally the lake of fire and punishment in hell forever weighed in the balances for them. And so this persuaded Paul and his team to encourage people to realize their condition and turn to Jesus to have forgiveness of their sins and to be able to receive the hope of eternal life as a gift and to be saved from the wrath of God and hell that they deserved and receive the gift of God. Paul's going to speak about that further on down in verse 
20, in fact, if you just glance down in this chapter, Paul says there, now then we as ambassadors for Christ, look what he says, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul saw this reality of that God would use them like an ambassador to plead with people to be reconciled to God, to enter into right relationship with him if they weren't yet saved through Jesus Christ. But I think also this has also prompted Paul, this fear of one day standing before the Lord, giving account before him, that sobering reality. It's also what encouraged Paul and his team to persuade Christians as well. That is to persuade fellow believers to live out their lives in a way, like Paul said he wanted to, to be fully pleasing to the Lord. That is to do what Paul says in Ephesians, to walk worthy of the calling we've received as children of God. And look, we all know that from time to time, we like wandering sheep need a little bit of encouragement to get back on the path, to be close to the shepherd. And like sheep that went astray initially, one of the problems with sheep is they have a tendency towards wandering. And so Paul knew that sometimes wandering sheep need a little bit of routine guidance from the shepherd to persuade them because the shepherd cares about their soul and what's best for them to persuade them to live right spiritually, to walk in right relationship with the Lord. And so therefore you can see at times Paul persuading people regarding the aspects of their spiritual life, people who maybe were starting to you know, regress spiritually and maybe entering back into sins and persuading them, what are you doing? Jesus set you free from that. Why would you go back to that? That was part of what was ruining your life. And you can see him reasoning with people. Is there anything to be gained in going back to that sin when you've already turned away from it and the Lord's given you? And you can see him persuade. Look, you need to turn back to the Lord, man. You need to let Jesus' power help you. And, and you can see him persuading people even when they would fail and they would be wallowing in self-pity and woe is me and I'm so horrible and I should never read my Bible again. I'm such a hypocrite and I'm not going back to church. I can't believe I sinned. In that. And you can see Paul persuading people, listen, Jesus forgave that. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes on the Lord. If anyone confess their sins, the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's acknowledge that sin, let's take ownership of that sin, and let's be thankful that that is under the blood of Christ, and let's walk with Jesus, and let's go forward, and not wallow in condemnation and self-pity. And you can see Paul persuading people to read their Bibles if they haven't been reading their Bibles, to get back to worshiping with the people of the Lord if they haven't been worshiping with the people of the Lord persuading people, reasoning with them to do what's right in a life of pleasing the Lord. Because in Paul's mind, he's thinking, look, one day you're going to stand before Jesus and you don't want to have regret. We want to stand before him and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so sometimes even as Christians, we need that persuasion to be reminded of these spiritual realities. And I think for all of us this morning, this is a wonderful motivation for all of our lives, a concern for us always knowing and remembering that one day we're going to give account to the Lord as people, as souls, as individuals, that should persuade us as well to want to persuade other people around us spiritually, to persuade lost souls to come to Jesus Christ and to be persuading fellow brothers and sisters at times in relation to our spiritual lives to be exhorting one another because we realize, hey, we want to stand together before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so it should prompt us that awareness to be not only persuading the lost, but even just encouraging and persuading one another. You know, I used to have a, a close friend back in our fellowship that we pastored in Calvary Chapel of York. Uh, and we kind of had this, it was kind of jokingly, but kind of a punch me in the forehead if I do what's wrong, kind of a relationship with one another. And just very early on, it was, look, if I, if, if I go there, Please, I'm giving you license. Please, in my face, man, be in my face. And it was a mutual understanding of just, look, I don't want to do what's dumb. So if I need to be persuaded, start persuading. And I promise you, I'll do the same for you. And I'll tell you, there's something very valuable to have some brothers and sisters in Christ and in a relationship that you have that dynamic with. And Paul here says, it's these eternal awarenesses that, that prompt us to persuade others 
around us. Now, Paul carries on with this idea, verse 11, to say, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences, for we do not commend ourselves, that is, speak well of ourselves again to you, but we want to, he says, give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance, the idea is an outward image, and not in heart or in a right heart attitude. So Paul seems to here be addressing another issue that was threatening the health of the church there at Corinth. Uh, and he's expressing here, I think, a motivation of really being sincere and genuine as a person in contrast to just maintaining an image before people. This, to me, is the motivation Paul's beginning to address here, is that Paul cared more about being sincere and genuine as a person than he did about maintaining an image before people. Now, I think Paul here is beginning to address something that we've already addressed somewhat in First and Second Corinthians that he's alluding to, that there were those who, for various different reasons, whether it was things that offended them or a misunderstanding happened, but mainly due to an unhealthy ulterior motive and agenda, who began to formulate a dislike for Paul and for his ministry and the leadership. And so then they began to, as we've seen, frame accusations against Paul the Apostle to try and discredit his character and to try and discredit his ministry. And they were arrogantly boasting how they were right and they were more spiritual and Paul couldn't be trusted and he's not a good man. And they wanted Paul to, it seems, almost enter into the ring of verbal dispute with them. And kind of banter back and forth, like, almost like, if I can use the analogy, it's a fitting week, like two debating politicians, right, who go back and forth. But one of the main things they do is they try and discredit the competition. Because if I can say things to discredit the competition, well, then it makes me look more valuable or more important to win followers. And though Paul would speak the truth, and he has, we've seen that, Paul didn't overcompensate in a overreactive way to the things that were being said to try and discredit his character. He was more concerned with simply being genuine in heart than trying to upkeep an image. That's why he says here in verse 11, we are well known to God and I trust are also well known in your conscience. In other words, what Paul's saying there is despite what is being said by my detractors, God knows what's true of us. And he says, and I kind of think that you know in your own conscience what's true of us as well, because we have relationship with you. And so Paul here says, look, we are well known to God. He said, God knows us very well. He's saying God is fully aware of everything that's true about us, what is right about our lives. He knows us perfectly and completely in ways that no other person does. He knows who we are in our private and our personal life that no one else sees. And he knows our desires and our motives and our reasons. And because God understands us fully, Paul says, he says, we kind of just rest in that reality of the accuracy that God knows what's accurate and true about our lives. And Paul says, we're, we're comfortable with that. He knows what's real and he stands with us. Romans 8, Paul would declare there, if God be for us, then who can be against us? And Paul kind of just rests in it. Look, God knows us well, he says. He knows what's true of our lives. And then Paul says, and also, I trust that we're pretty well known in your consciences also. In other words, what Paul's indicating there is he's saying that voice of your conscience speaking to you inwardly, despite what others may be saying about us, he says, I think in your own conscience that we've developed enough relationship, Paul's saying, I've spent time with you, the church there at Corinth, he says, you've gotten to know me, I've invested in you, we've developed a relationship, you've seen my care for you. And he says, I, I kind of are, am comfortable with the reality that in your conscience, I kind of think that you know what's true of us as well, despite what others may be saying. And kind of the idea that Paul's alluding to here is he was relying on the benefit of their sincere relationship and how it had built trust to where then they might say, you know, I know what's being said about Paul, but we know Paul. I mean, we, and, and I know what's being, I know what's going on right now, but you know what? I mean, I don't, but we know Paul's character. We, we have a relationship with him. We have history with him. 
And there's something very valuable about developing relationship and history and trust in a way where a bond is there, where Paul recognized, you know, I'm going to kind of just rest in that reality. And that's why he declares in verse 12, for we do not commend ourselves again to you. The idea there is, notice, he says, we're not going to commend or speak well of ourselves. Notice he says, again. Paul had already kind of, remember, defended himself once already. And so what Paul's indicating there, he says, we're not going to re-engage in this process of trying to defend ourselves of what's true all over again. Paul certainly knew that after speaking the truth, there comes a time to just let the truth play out over time. That there's something very valuable where you realize, look, it is not wise, and quite honestly, it is not worth it to keep debating continually and trying to defend yourself or striving to sell yourself or striving to prove yourself, to win people over. Sometimes it's best to just speak the truth and let it go and let God in time bring the truth about. Psalm 37 tells us this, commit everything you do to the Lord, trust him and he will help you. Listen, he will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and your justice of your cause will shine. So Paul says, instead of commending ourselves, what we want to do, he says, verse 12, is we're actually going to just be quiet and we're going to give you an opportunity through the relationship that we've built. He says to actually, if you choose to boast on our behalf, the idea is to answer those who were arrogantly attacking Paul and cared more about some impressive superior image, but they weren't really right in their hearts. That's what Paul's saying there, to give an answer to those who boast in their appearance, that is, they're arrogant in their, their image they portray, but they're not really right in part. Paul knew his detractors had more pride in their self-image than in really having a right and a proper heart condition. And he knew that they were just troublemakers whose hearts weren't right, and they, they focused on maintaining an image more than they really cared about really being right and sincere and genuine in their hearts. And Paul knew this reality, and I'll tell you something, oftentimes when people put a hyper-focus on self-image and trying to upkeep an image outwardly, a lot of times that tends to be a cover-up that their heart's not right in some way because they're trying so hard to keep this impressive, superior, spiritual, whatever, image outwardly, a lot of times that can be a cover-up that things aren't too, too good on the inside or that their heart's not in the right place. And the reason I know that, because Jesus was frustrated about that. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spoke of those who were corrupt in the religious system. And Jesus said this in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense, a cover-up, make long prayers. Boy, those who were ripping off widows were praying the longest prayers at the prayer meeting. Isn't that interesting? As a cover-up, you pray beautiful spiritual long prayers. And he says, it's just a pretense. Therefore, if you will have the greater condemnation for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. Even so, he says, you outwardly appear righteous before men, but inside are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 of the false prophets and religious leaders, he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Again, Jesus said that this is a reality that happens at times in the spiritual arena. And he was displeased, our Lord was, with those who sought to make an effort to keep a superior image rather than just be sincere in their hearts and who they really were. Remember, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, it says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks what? At the heart. That, that's what God cares about. What's really true of someone's heart? And I think Paul knew and he was comfortable with his heart was sincere, so he was willing to just allow others to speak on his behalf and not get in the verbal ring. You know, Proverbs says that's great wisdom. Proverbs 27, 2 says this. It says, let another man praise you and not your own mouth. The same chapter says the refining pot is for silver and a furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. See, sometimes the fire in life is turned up 
to actually prove what's really true of us and what's not. And sometimes that's because the fire is turned up. Those are the occasions when those who truly know us best will come to our aid and say, look, I don't care what you're saying. I know what's true about him. I know what's true about her. And he says, don't, don't do it yourself. Let another do it. And Paul's example here is a great indication that his motivation was foremost about being sincere and genuine in heart and not upkeeping some outward image before people. And this is very important to the spiritual life. It should be a motivation that we all have. Jesus cautioned against a spiritual life that was more about a show than it was about sincere, genuine heart condition. You read Matthew chapter 6 and 7, and there Jesus pointed out how this was going on. People were using their spiritual life like a show, praying prayers outwardly and giving while they were blowing trumpets. And, And Jesus said, look, don't be like people who are doing that. Don't make your spiritual life a show. Just be real. Just be genuine. Let your heart be sincere. Again, if you ever have to choose in your life between upholding an image to impress or being right before God, let me encourage you, be right before God. If you have to pick maintaining an image or being right before God, always pick just do what is right before the Lord And may we be motivated in that way. Paul says, verse 13 there, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we're of sound mind, it's for you. So here we see some further motivation that was happening in Paul's life together with his team. And you could simply say, verse 13, he's indicating this motivation that his primary desire, as he's already alluded to, was to seek God's approval and secondarily to do what helped people to seek God's approval, and to do what helped people. Notice the first part of verse 13. Here he indicates that he wanted God's approval because he says right there, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Now, when he says there, beside ourselves, notice it's in contrast to verse 13, to what? A sound mind. So when Paul speaks here of being beside ourselves, he's talking about kind of being out of one's mind. Or we might say standing beside yourself like a second personality and talking to yourself. That guy's beside himself. He's, he, it's like he's got two minds. He's, he's struggling mentally. He's not stable in mind. That person is crazy. And Paul's saying people may think at times that we are off kilter mentally. They may think that we're beside ourselves. If people think we're not right mentally because of the way we think spiritually or our commitment level to the Lord, or what we choose to do, listen, that contradicts rational thinking or pragmatic, logical reasoning that the world uses out there. And he says, and if that makes people think, those people are out of their mind. This guy, Paul, his Jesus thing, it's made him lost his mind. Paul says, that's fine. We'll be seen as crazy. We'll be seen as crazy for God. We're okay with that. And Paul here brings this reality. He says, people can think we're, we're not thinking correctly because we don't think the way we do. And he says, I'm willing to be seen as crazy if it's crazy for God. Look, can I remind you something this morning? Somebody is always going to criticize you for something. If you haven't figured that out yet, God help you. <laughs> You're out of your mind. <laughs> people are always going to criticize you. How wonderful to learn early on. Okay, if you're going to, be somebody who criticizes me, then criticize me for the right reasons. And if somebody wants to criticize you because of the way you think now as a Christian or decisions you make as you try and do what's right before the Lord, they might as well criticize you for how radically you live devoted to God at times and to the will of God and to the ways of a spiritual life rather than a pragmatic earthly life of how everybody in the unsaved world lives and makes their decisions. The Bible says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Can I remind you, the most perfect man who ever walked this planet, you know what his family thought? He was out of his mind. That was Jesus. His own family, his earthly family thought that he was out of his mind. Why? Because he was so dedicated to obeying the will of God and the Father in heaven. And everyone else who wasn't that dedicated to obeying the will of God, they didn't understand him. They thought he was crazy when the exact opposite was true. He was thinking right, and they were crazy. 
And look, this morning, as followers of the Lord, Paul's foremost desire was, look, I'm, I'm concerned about the Lord's approval. I want God's acceptance. If we're out of our mind, fine. We're out of our mind for God. And if God approves of that, we're okay with that. And I would ask this morning by way of application, how far are you willing to go outside of the box at times of logic and reasoning of worldly ways of thinking in order to please God and have God's approval and not the approval or the acceptance of this person or that person or those people? Are you willing at times to do things to honor God that might appear, here we go, a bit crazy crazy you're doing what that's crazy you're out of your mind you're beside yourself i am for god if you want to think i'm crazy for god then think i'm crazy for god look people do crazy things for all other kinds of crazy motives in my opinion look what people will do crazy things for If you're going to do something crazy, you might as well do something crazy for God as far as I'm concerned. Have God's approval and let God be the one that you're aiming to please because you're willing to do what you do. Be crazy for the Lord. That's a good thing. And Paul says the second half of the verse, and if we appear to have a sound mind to be thinking reasonably, then he says that's not for us either. He says we're actually thinking that way for you. And I think what Paul is conveying here is even when we appear to be thinking right because we're not thinking about ourselves and what's best for us, Instead, we're trying to consider what's best for your welfare because in Paul's mindset, he says that's the reasonable way to think, not to live a self-serving life, he's going to say, but living a life for God first and for others second. You know, Paul would write to the Philippians in chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of of others. See, after pleasing God first and having God's approval first, a reasonable thinking person from a biblical perspective then thinks about other people next and says, it's not just about my life or what's best for me. I'm going to consider others more important than me, and I'm going to make my decisions in consideration of how does this help someone else or how might that not help someone else? And so Paul says here, when we're reasonably thinking, it's for you because that, from God's perspective, is it a reasonable mindset to put others before ourselves. Paul goes on, verse 14, to say, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, it's that those should live, would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So here we see some other things that were motivations going on in Paul's life and in the ministry there. First thing that's obvious, the beginning part of verse 14, is they were motivated by the love of Jesus that they had sensed and experienced for themselves. One of their biggest motivations was the love of Jesus they had sensed and experienced for themselves. He says, verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Your translation may say constrains us. The idea is squeezes us to force us in a particular direction. That's the idea there. And I want you to notice here what it does not say. It does not say love for Jesus compels us. He doesn't say it's love for Jesus, our love for him. Now, indeed, our love for the Lord can be a good motivator, and I don't want to diminish that. You know, the Bible tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. And love is a powerful motivator. We all know that. The sacrifices many of you have made for your children or are making for your children out of love for them, love's a powerful motivator. Love motivates us to make great sacrifices and do incredible things for people that we love and that we care about. It's a powerful incentive that prompts us to do many different things, to give focused attention on caring for people and doing what's best for them. So love for the Lord can indeed be a a very wonderful motivator, yet our love for Jesus is not the strongest and most stable motivation. And because if you're anything like me, as sinful people, we are all prone at times to still become a little bit selfish. And sometimes my old love for myself, which is still there within me, and my love at times for other things can interfere with my love for the Lord. 
and can cause me in my own selfish love for myself or love for other things to be unfaithful to the Lord and to sometimes not do what pleases to the Lord and neglect serving him. So love for the Lord isn't the best motivation. What Paul says here under the inspiration of the Spirit is he says it's the love, notice, of Christ that compels us. Paul says the motivation that's driving us is our personal awareness of the love of Jesus Christ towards us, experiencing the effect of his love on me. And you experiencing and having an awareness of the incredible love that Jesus has for you in the ways that he's demonstrated to you and showed it to you. And that when you and I have an intimate encounter with Jesus's love, whether it's the first time you experience it or you become more fully aware of it or those times in your life when you're going through those things and the Lord does something and you realize, oh my goodness, I can't believe he loves me that much or I can't believe he still loves me. And it's that pure, unconditional, powerful, constant love of Jesus that does something inside of a human soul. I go back to the prior verses. That's what makes you go crazy. I mean, it just, that just blows your mind. I don't know about you, but when I first experienced the love of Jesus, it messed my mind up. I thought my mind was messed up before I became a Christian. After I met Jesus, that really messed up my mind. Because the love that we experience from Jesus, it has this way to compel us to do what's right and to live as we should in ways like ever before. And, and it's a supernatural experience that any Christian knows well. That overwhelming love of Jesus expressed towards you that motivates you unlike anything or anyone else. You want to motivate someone, help them to experience the love of Jesus. Don't beat them over the head with a bunch of rules, make make them feel horrible about themselves. No, you let them see how much Jesus loves them, and that will motivate them like nothing's ever motivated them before. It's a powerful motivator. The love of Christ is the purest and most powerful motivator that a human soul can experience. And Paul says here, it's that love of Christ. That's what compels us and motivates us. And then he directly describes how the love of Christ was demonstrated most fully. You notice that is in the sacrificial and substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus. In verse 14 and 15, Paul three times repeats how Jesus Christ has died for all mankind. That is in his sacrificial death to rescue us from sin's punishment and power, to rescue us from Satan's control over our life, keeping us like a slave, ruining our lives. How Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection has spared us from hell's judgment and that that is the clearest display of the love of God towards us. You know, when you read your New Testament, I encourage you to take note that every time God tries to point to his love for you, he always points to one subject, the death of Jesus Christ, the cross. It tells us in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Anytime God wants to demonstrate and make his love clear, he always points to Jesus' sacrificial death on your behalf on the cross because that is the purest indication of God's love for you. Not your circumstances, not what's happened in your life. It's what Jesus did to rescue your soul and to bring you into a relationship with God. And so therefore, Paul says, because Jesus died for us, taking this full punishment for us, those of us who receive him by faith, we enter into his experience of his life and our lives become unified with his spiritually. Paul says here, we judge thus, he says, that if one died for all, then all died. The idea is that our old sinful life was put to death together with Jesus when he died on the cross and that our lives have been unified together with his. This is what Romans 6 teaches us, that our lives have been joined together with Jesus's life in his experiences of his death on the cross 
and his resurrection. And the Bible says in Romans 6, that is so that we too now may live a new life, that we can die to that old life and that we can live a new life in the resurrection power of Jesus in a completely different way. And that's why Paul was declaring here, he did this in his love for us and he died for us so we could be dead to that old way of living and that we could live in a completely different way. And Paul's trying to convey in verse 15, he says that those who live, notice, should now live no longer for themselves, but now for him who died for them and rose again. See, God's divine purpose in all this is responsive appreciation. That's how God wants us to be motivated, by responsive appreciation for what Jesus has done for us, that that would be the motivator within us to intentionally live. He says that each Christian, look what he says, verse 15, each Christian should no longer live for themselves. Why? Because that was the old way you lived. That's how you used to live before you knew Jesus, before you knew he died for you and rose again for you. And before he did what he did for you, the way that we all lived from our birth onward is we lived for ourselves. Look, I can prove that in a reverse way. Jesus said to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute, love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus says, yes, I know you love yourself. So as much as you love yourself, try loving other people as much as you love yourself. Try thinking of other people and caring about other people and doing things for other people as much as you naturally want to do for yourself because you love yourself. So we naturally love ourselves and therefore we naturally live for ourselves. That's the old way, the original way. That's the, the, you might say, the Adamic, referring to Adam, the Adamic nature is to live for ourselves, to be self-serving and to be self-centered and to operate in those ways where we do what's best for us personally. We literally live our lives for ourselves. But he says the love of Christ and this spiritual work that's happened inside of us as a Christian happened in such a way whereby we would no longer live for ourselves, but we would have a change of motivation. And he says, so that now we would no longer live for ourselves, but do what? Live for Jesus, who died and rose again for us appreciatively. It would prompt us to want to honor and serve the Lord with this new life he's given to us, and that his power would help us to do that. Paul declared this to the Philippians by saying this, for me to live is what? Christ. For me to live is Christ. Paul says, this is what my life is about, living for Jesus Christ. That is the primary soul foremost purpose. And that's a proper spiritual understanding and gives us an internal motivation to live in a healthy way that we're supposed to as Christians. The Christian, from God's perspective, <clears throat> should not be living about what's best for themselves. They should be living about what honors Jesus, what serves Jesus, what pleases Jesus, and what fulfills the purposes of the Lord because we don't live for ourselves anymore. We now live for Jesus. That's the highest motivator for how our life should be governed. And I'll tell you something. That is also, ladies and gentlemen, from what I found, that is also the answer to a suicidal tendency in people. I numerous times have spoken to Christians Sadly, I've also buried Christians and buried others as well who've committed suicide. And the lie of the devil is you have no reason to live. You have nothing to live for. I have nothing to live for. You don't understand I have nothing to live for. I said, that's fine. Live for Jesus. There's always a reason to live for Jesus. I have nothing to live for anymore, nothing to live for. You can genuinely feel that way. But the answer is, Live for Jesus. That's something to live for. It's a great thing to live for. There's lots of purpose in that. You're not living for yourself anyway. Live for Jesus. It gives you a hopeful reason to keep living. You live for the Lord because he loves you. And he'll use your life and do great things through your life. And what a wonderful incentive to have a motivation for a reason to live. For me to live, he says, is Christ. And Paul says, verse 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, that is their human nature, even though we once known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. So Paul describes here 
that it's this spiritual experience we've had with Christ that motivated him, notice, to relate to people according to their inward condition and not their outward appearance. This was a motivation of Paul, to relate to people according to their inward condition and not their outward appearance. You notice what he says in the second half of the verse? He says, at one time we knew Christ according to the flesh, but we don't know him and relate to him in that way any longer. He's referring to how at one point in time, Jesus was in a physical body, right? He had a body of flesh and people related to him according to his physical status and appearance. They related to him in the flesh. Now take note, when they related to Jesus in the flesh, how did humanity do? Really bad. When they related to him in the flesh, they misunderstood him. They mistreated him, right? And he says, but now Jesus died. He rose again. He ascended back into heaven. We don't relate to and know Jesus according to the physical flesh anymore. Now we relate to Jesus spiritually. We relate to him in a different way now. And Paul's saying it is that same model that we now take and we transfer over in regards to how we relate to people. We don't want to relate to people, he says, the beginning part of the verse, according to the flesh, who they are in their physical appearance, who they are outwardly. But he says instead, we want to relate to people according to who they are inwardly who they are in their heart. We relate to them according to the understanding that they are a soul that God loves and cares about. And Paul says, our motivation is to endeavor to know people and to understand people and to relate to people according to who they are in their heart. Not who they are in their outward appearance or their earthly status or what they seem to be doing in their current practice in the flesh. Because see, if we do that, Despite fleshly appearance, whether their outward status is impressive or unimpressive, both of those things misguide a lot of times the way that we treat the people and relate people, just like it did with Jesus. Because if we are impressed with someone, we can fail to remember, as we're so impressed with them, that they are still a soul that needs the Lord. And they may seem very, he's so impressive, he's so impressive. He is still a human soul in the sight of a God that loves him and wants a relationship with him. Don't be over-impressed with anybody. Everybody is a soul that's eternal and needs the same thing that we all need, forgiveness of sins and relationship with God and assurance of heaven. They're just a human soul. Now, on the other side of that, sometimes we make the mistake of maybe somebody being not too impressive in their outward appearance. James speaks about that. And so we brush somebody off a little too quickly because of their outward appearance or because of maybe where they're at in their physical status of what's going on in their life, and we overlook someone and we treat them as less valuable than what they really are, that person's a soul still. Whether you're impressed with them or not, it doesn't matter what their status is. That is a human soul. And God loves that person. And God cares about that person greatly. And what a glorious spiritual principle, Paul says, we should use in how we relate to people. Don't relate to people according to who they are in the flesh. What's going on in their heart? care about their inward nature. That is the thing that we should really, you know, value most. You know, all of us have heard that old adage, you know, don't judge a book by what? It's, it's cover, right? L- look below the surface with people. We-, we are those who should care about the hearts of individuals. Now, it's with this mindset that Paul says, verse 17, which is sort of a transitional verse to where we'll go next time. He says, therefore, in light of this, if anyone's in Christ, that is in a relationship with Jesus Christ, He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So that verse is stated, notice, contextually in conclusion to what Paul just said in the prior verse, that we don't want to relate to people in who they are physically, but into who they are inwardly and spiritually. That's how we want to relate to people because of that new condition, particularly, he says, if they're in Christ, if they're a Christian now, that if they're a Christian the motivation of our heart should be to view them in their new Christian identity, that they are a brand new person in Jesus Christ. They've been married to Christ and have a new status. He says in Christ, a person is a new creation. The idea is they're born anew spiritually. They've received a brand new life. I don't care what their former life was. In Christ, they're a brand new creation. Their life has begun anew. Their slate has been wiped clean. They've been washed in the blood of Christ and they've been given the ultimate second chance. 
They've been given God's divine do-over, a start-over of a brand-new life. They're a brand-new creation in God's perspective, and that's the benefit of entering into a relationship with Jesus. It's just like a marriage. You know, last weekend we watched a young couple get married, and when she said her vows and she got married to that young man, I'll tell you one thing happened. Her status changed. She's not a single lady no more. Her status changed. Her whole life's going to change because she entered into a relationship with that groom. And when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, our status changes, our identity changes. Everything changes about us. And that's why Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, he says, and all things, behold, he says, have become new. And what a wonderful spiritual reality that is to realize all the old things about a person's life, your life or any other Christian, that's gone. That's gone. All the old things of your life before you came to Christ, it's been removed supernaturally by God. The sins, the mistakes, the failures, who you once were in your identity. Look, this morning, biblically, do not believe that you are still who you once were. You're not renovated you're regenerated. That's a completely different thing. You're not a renovated, oh, I'm an old, I'm an... No, you're not. You are new. You're brand new according to the word of God. You have a new life. Those old things are gone. Don't believe your old identity. If the devil whispers in your ear, that's not who you are anymore. He says, all things have become new. You have a brand new life given to you, a new heart with new ideas and new mindsets and new attitudes and new desires, embrace your new identity. Let yourself be motivated every day in Christ to appreciate your new identity and say, you know what? I am going to believe what is true of myself according to the word of God, that I have a new identity, that I'm a new person now. And look, live like that new person. Live like that new person. And when we relate to one another, we relate to fellow Christians. Let's forget what they were. Let's embrace them and relate to them for who they are. They're new. They're in Christ. And we have the greatest message to share with every unconverted soul out there in the world. God offers everybody a do-over. You can have a brand new life, a brand new identity. May our lives demonstrate that. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father.